everybody. Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert Podcast. I'm your host, James Huang, a little raspier than usual thanks to my spring allergies. Woohoo. We are back on our normal schedule after a couple of bonus episodes from the Sea Otter Classic last week. Joining me here in the Boulder Group Petto, as usual, is pro mechanic Zach Edwards. Greetings, old grumpy hater. Hello. We also have Cycling Tips Senior Tech Editor Dave Rome. Hi, Dave. Good morning. Afternoon. I don't know. It's uh, <laughs> not relevant for anyone listening. <laughs> right, right. One of those. <laughs> and sitting this one out after a long and arduous week toiling at Paris Roubaix is Cycling Tips Tech Editor in Chief Kaylee Fretz. Wah, wah. What do you think? Did, we, did he just have like too much rose? Oh, no, it's too many Duvals. Oh, right. Belgium. Yeah. Right. He saves the rose for when he's at the tour. Correct. Uh, Dave, you had a bit of an ordeal getting home from Sea Otter, I believe, huh? Yeah. Uh, not too bad. I was delayed by 24 hours for getting on a plane for what, uh, in hindsight, just appears to be some uh, miscommunication with United believing I needed a QR code from my government to let me back in, and uh, I didn't. So yeah. Anyway, all I got an extra. I got an extra COVID test. I had all the fun stuff. Managed to have a nice night in Monterey, and home I went eventually. So yeah, mm. wasn't too bad. Okay. All right. Well, I'm glad you made it home eventually. Uh, Zach, we missed you at Sea Otter because what what's this about? I guess Kelly was under the impression that you were sort of like kind of gonna go and then didn't go, and like we we. I was going to there. go, and then flights options weren't great, and I was really busy here, so. I stayed here. So you opted to make money. Yeah, instead of going to get dusty. Mm. But Probably a good choice. Probably a good choice. Well, we are not going to bother discussing recent tech news on today's episode uh, because there happened to be a little bike race up in northern France this past weekend with some interesting gear that we should probably talk about. You may or may not have heard. Uh, what was it? Paris Roubaix? Was that That's what the one. Okay. They, they rode over a bunch of weird rocks. Yep. Old roads. It's really yeah. interesting that specializes the naming rights that that race. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, that's a good deal. Old town, strange. Wow, that's strange. Amazing. Well, you like you, you go into the city center and it's just like specialized banners everywhere. Yep. Huh. People people commuting on Roubaix. Cafe Roubaix. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Good oh, on them, man. Good on them. Well, we well we unfortunately do not have Ronin. Uh, on the show with us today, mainly because, uh, well, Rodan is on vacation now uh, because he was also uh, at Roubaix gathering up a whole bunch of tech stuff. Um, but thankfully, he sort of downloaded a whole bunch of his notes over my way. So we have a lot, of talk, we have a lot to talk about here. Um, one thing that Zach and I were just talking about is uh, basically a, a wholesale sea change in tire and wheel setups at Roubaix just in the last couple of years. Let's say what two years ago, Tubeless was kind of just sort of like an experiment. An experiment. Yep. Yeah. It was. Uh, What's his name? Christoph tried to run them and flatted like a million times. He was also and, running really small tires that day, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah. He was on twenty fives. Um, but now almost every single team was on Tubeless, at least on the men's side, anyway. Uh, and actually, most of the women too, I think. Yeah. I mean, I was at Roubaix last year. And I would say it was probably closer to 50-50, tubular and Tubeless, but well, and quick step on tubes but that's a whole nother story. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, this year it seemed like there's like a handful of pe- w- random people on tubulars and then like Yumbo was the only main team on tubulars. It seemingly was like 90-10 this time around. Yeah. Um, and according to Ronan, one of their only reasons why um, at least some of the people were on tubulars were basically because, was basically because they couldn't get uh, tubeless setups in time for the race. So it was basically just a, a parts availability sort of thing. Um, 
The other thing that's interesting with the whole tubeless thing is uh, Ronan was able to confirm that several teams were running foam inserts in their tubeless tire setups. However, we're pretty sure that an awful lot more were running inserts and just weren't talking about them. Uh, Zach, what are your thoughts on this? Because I think you had, I mean, you had a little th- bit of a theory on this. I think that if it weren't for inserts, tubulars would still be more prevalent at Roubaix because a tubular, you get a flat, you can ride through the end of the sector on the flat with your tire still on the rim, get to wherever there's a mechanic with the wheel and change. But I think the inserts kind of allow you to still ride flats, but also like if you've not ridden Roubaix cobbles, it's insanely hard to describe how treacherous and awful and terrible and just how gnarly they are. So like the inserts allow you to ride, like you go ride Roubaix cobbles by yourself and you can mostly avoid holes or you like hit a hole, but you can see it coming. So you kind of lift your wheel a little bit and only smack your rim a touch instead of like fully plowing into it. But you're in a group going 50 K an hour. It's dusty. You can't see anything like you're going to hit some holes. And like, if you've not ridden those cobbles, like you're like, Oh, a hole, it's fine. But like, imagine just like running straight into a like (laughs) six inch (laughs) sidewalk curb at full speed with your wheel. Like that's, what these cobbles are like. So having an insert allows you to smash into these holes and maybe you still get a flat, but you don't like collapse your wheel or like, well, or it allows you to not flat. Like there was a video of a Yumbo guy who destroyed his wheel. And it's kind of funny cause he like skids to a stop with his wheel folded in half. And, but the comments are like, Oh crappy Shimano wheels and everything. But it's like, no, that's just Roubaix. Like these roads are so awful. So I think having, having the inserts allows has allowed more teams to adopt tubeless because otherwise maybe you get you burp your tire and that's your race or you flat and the tire kind of comes off the speed gets tangled in your chain stays and then that's like kind of it yeah and like speaking of the the yumbo issue so it actually turns out that there that there were two yumbo riders who had wheels uh fold in half on them so one was christophe laporte which is the video that uh the video that most people probably saw on twitter uh wout van Aert actually also folded his wheel as well and as you mentioned earlier, Zach, Yumbo was one of the only teams that was running tubulars. And since you can't run a foam insert in a tubular, it seems extremely unlikely that that wheel is like defective in design no, or something. It was like just that. he I mean, like if anything, plowed it straight into a rock yeah, at full if, speed. If anything, Shimano has always been known to be very conservative in terms of carbon wheel design. Um, but the the thing that's that I guess noteworthy is that yeah, nowadays when you flat on a tubular. Like you have no cushioning, essentially. You have like a little bit of that paper thin casing, essentially, and you're smashing it into a, a granite cobble. There's a good chance that your rim is going to crack and fail catastrophically. Um, but whereas yeah, with not, these, they're not slowing down once that tire goes. No, flat. yeah, because like no. it went flat from hitting a hole or a rock or whatever, and then he kept riding because I'm you have to get to the end of the sector, and like yeah. he gu- guarantee you smashed into another hole or five more holes, and that is what ruined the wheel. Right. Yeah. It's 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 amusing to me that all the comments on on social media are sort of pointing to like bad wheels and that they'd never buy that product. And it's like you're never going to be in that situation. Yeah, <laughs> it's not applicable. It's no, just it's not like, a consumer. It's such issue. an outlier, such yeah. an outlier of an event, and like such specific needs that. Yeah, it's just it's funny people. Did we? It seemed like I, I didn't do an official count. Uh, Ronan did an official, didn't do an official count. I'm I'm not sure we'd be able to anyway. Um, but did it seem like there were more flats this year than typical? 
I mean, there's always so many flats. It's just like some years, maybe it's the guys in the front group. So you see it on TV other years. It's the rest of the Peloton that you don't see on the TV. Like there's just so many flats. There's a reason why every team has a Swanee or a, a someone with a wheel set, like on every, yeah, like sector. every hundred meters in the sectors, right? Like, because flats are very, very prevalent and team cars are miles back. I vaguely think there is like, is there a flat count? I vaguely recall seeing one in years past. It'd be interesting to look up. I feel like when neutral, like Mavic neutral was more of a thing, they would kind of do a wheel count. Oh, uh, okay. If I yeah, remember, because okay. they would like, basically you have all the wheels and then they go trade them with yeah, the team. Yeah, it's been mechanics. a while since I've seen the data, but I remember they used to be. Um, yeah. That'd be interesting. But uh yeah, I don't know. It was also, I guess, worth keeping in mind it was the fastest Roubaix in history. So yeah, it was right. inevitably going to also cause uh, a few more issues as well, given the speed they're hitting things at. Yeah. Well, that's another thing about Roubaix, I guess modern Roubaix these days. Um, so I still remember when it was a big, big deal when Zip ran that first 303 at Roubaix, when it was like, Oh, hold on, Zach's got a story. But when that was, it was like unheard of to run a carbon wheel, right? And and granted, it maybe didn't go as smoothly as they would have hoped. This is one of my all time favorite stories. So they ran these wheels a couple times, but they all broke. <laughs> but then the year that they finally, I can't remember if it was Conchalar or O'Grady, finished in third on the podium. And their whole marketing was like, first carbon wheel to finish Roubaix. And that same year, Pippo Pizzato got second and he was riding Hyperons which is like a thousand gram carbon campy wheel set. <laughs> climbing wheel. Yeah, climbing wheel. And he finished before the zips. So I thought that was always really funny. <laughs> <laughs> was there a really, really small print saying like first zip carbon wheel? Well, no, it was like in magazines, like full page ad, like first carbon wheel to finish Roubaix. That, that text was surely like black on black or something. I bet it was yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. If you had the Photoshop file, you could you could have pulled it up. Yeah, Pippo finished on Hyperons. And Pippo too was running like 23 tires, which made it even better. <laughs> but I'm sure well, the wheels were cracked. But <laughs> so, but looking at the bikes in general now, it is it is uh, you know it used to be that you know especially if you had a wet Roubaix, which we haven't had. Well, aside from last year, um, we haven't had a, a wet Roubaix in the traditional time frame in ages. Yeah, 20, um, 2001 or something. And it does seem like the the disc brake era has really ushered in this new breed of race bikes that now not only have the clearance to take tires that are required as far as the tire size for Roubaix, um, but now, I, I mean, I have to think the, the, the more aero equipment and everything that they're running at Roubaix does play into the fact that the speeds are increasing because you no longer have to run kind of like the old weird stuff to just have just, just to make it to the end of the race, to, just to have your stuff survive because most of the stuff is making it just fine. Like they're not riding super weird bikes. They're they're riding like pretty normal equipment, just with the bigger tires that you can fit and in even, all these bikes now. Even teams that have a bike sponsor that has a Roubaix bike, or a lot of the riders are still using their normal race bike because you can fit 30s on it, and they don't need the suspension or whatever because you have a 30 or a 32 tire now. And, like and the race running, frames are more comfortable. Yeah, and you used to be running a. A 26, 27, maybe a 28 tire. So then that's why all these companies made suspension and the bikes to kind of counteract that. But now we have 32s. So who cares what compliance is in the frame? It's so much tire now. Um, as far as some of the equipment goes, a lot of the other tricks that we used to see have largely gone away. I mean, th this has been ages now that you know, we used to see bar top brake levers and stuff. Those have been gone for a while. 
Uh, we don't see as many even like double wrapped bar tape and stuff like that as we used to. Like a lot of stuff is just gone. Yeah. Which is kind of wild. Because but the cobbles haven't changed. No, definitely not. They're still just as terrible. Uh, so it, it just makes me wonder, you know, yeah, the, the you know teams are still running essentially the same tire sizes as they have been for a long time. Um, mm, they've gotten bigger, I would say. Have like, they gotten a little bigger? Yeah, like like five years ago, like I remember, was it Lars Boom, I think was the first person to bust out a set of 32s. And everyone was like, holy cow, what is this wild, huge tubular? <laughs> and everyone else is still on, because they most people ran Victoria Paves at the time. And oh, I think that right. was a you're 27 right. was the biggest that that was made. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So like, it's definitely like, it's not a drastic difference, but on I mean, a long day on cobbles, a 27 to a 32 is a pretty significant and and the knowledge and pressures has changed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in terms of pressures, uh, Ronan was pretty good as far as trying to scope out what mechanics were inflating tires up to. And and uh, um, it looked like most of the riders were running somewhere in the neighborhood of like high 40s to like mid 60s PSI, um, which is it's a ballpark. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, it's it's a pretty big range. Obviously, there's a pretty big range in rider weights and stuff too. But um, comparatively well, speaking, that's definitely pretty soft yeah yeah it's um, lower than i thought given the given the cobbles hence why we're also seeing many inserts. flats yeah <laughs> yeah but inserts lots of inserts and i suspect that we'll we'll see more inserts hitting the market uh as as this whole de- as this whole sort of technology continues to continues to develop but i feel like do we need more inserts like we were just saying this is such a specific use case it, it is like do people need inserts in road tires? No. I don't think so. No. But for but, gravel off-road things, sure. Go ahead. Use inserts. They're great. But I I just wonder for like, let's say, yes, you can make an argument that high-end tubeless setups are, you know, somewhat faster in terms of rolling resistance if you run them tubeless. Although we also know that there's not that much of a difference if you just run a latex tube. Um, however, if you for for the segment of the riding population that goes to tubeless because they either want or need that sort of flat protection uh, just with the seam yeah, but most people's flats aren't are punctures of around glass here anyway or whatever. like people aren't riding their 28 mil road tires on cobbles like, no, unless no, no, you live no. in northern france that's yeah, not but, no but I'm, but i'm saying area. like yeah but okay. like most people are not running 40 psi on their road bike tires and like having to like impact flats are not usually a thing on a road bike unless no, someone but, just doesn't air their tires up. But, but that Vittoria, uh, that Vittoria uh, road uh, insert that they have, that one's kind of a little bit of an outlier because it's designed to, to compress. It's designed to, to really shrink essentially when you have the tire aired up. Um, so that one's not even really meant that much to prevent pin flat, pinch flats. It's kind of really meant more to be like actual run flat protection. But if you're a run flat, like you're not, let's say you're out on a casual ride, you get a flat tire you're going to stop and fix it rather than being like, I have 15 miles to go home. I'm going to ride on the flat. I, I'm thinking, it's not like I have a team car that will be here in four minutes. So I'm going to continue to ride on the flat. I, I'm thinking about the people who literally don't know how to change a flat on the road. And I'm just wondering if you do or have some so sort much of, they don't want yeah, to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or, but the thing is, as but especially a tubeless, like plugs have made fixing a flat so much easier. Sure. You don't have to deal totally. with taking the tire on and off or, putting a tube or anything. But but I'm just saying, like, if you, for, for the segment of the riding population that either doesn't want to or isn't capable or just hasn't learned to fix a flat out on the road or 
if you're looking at some of these tubeless wheel and tire setups that are virtually impossible to fix out in the road because because they're so such a tight fit, I I just wonder if we'll see a little bit more of these run flat inserts. And now Zach has to answer the phone so he can't chime in. Ha! Uh, I'm I'm following your logic on this, James, and I think it's it makes a lot of sense. And I think you're you're actually right in where the technology will be going because uh, I look to like Giants as an example on this. They they've for years now pushed uh, tubeless as a consumer product on basically all of their uh, all of their bikes except for their very entry level bikes. So if you buy a Giant bike, it comes with tubeless tires. And that has been hard as far as product acceptance. A lot of people are kind of scared by the technology and just rip the tubeless off and put tube tires on straight away. And I think the next step is to have a product that basically guarantees that the product's rideable regardless whether there's air or not in the tire. Uh, and that it, it, it could basically turn into a product that it's, if you're confident in your mechanical abilities, yes, you can fix it yourself. If you're not, then you can ride it until you can get to a shop. And I think that's exactly where the liners are going to go. Yeah, and especially with some of these inserts, um, yeah, it's not going to be like a performance feel if you yep. get a flat and you're basically riding on the insert. But if it lets you finish, like, I don't know, even like 10, 15K away from home without too much issue, then yep. I, I think that would appeal to a lot of people. Like for the same reason why... Uh, like you have run flat tires in cars now. I mean, yes. those run flat tires may not necessarily be great, but a lot of people do see that as a plus because they, in theory, don't have to worry as much about a flat tire in the car. Um, never mind the fact that those tires are much more expensive and they ride like poop. But um, but a lot of people do see that as a plus. So I I I just wonder if that'll be a thing. Yeah, yeah. I think I think we'll see these things become more prevalent and continue to grow in options and uh in popularity um and then perhaps people will figure out that they're not needed but i think that we're we're at the very beginning of the story so far yeah i agree so we'll keep an eye on this one well zach conveniently we were able to finish the conversation on inserts without you so we, you, we just yeah we, we just we just decided to not include your input that's fine <laughs> road inserts road inserts the product of the future <laughs> All right, well, looking at drivetrain stuff, wasn't long ago that we did see a lot of, especially the um, kind of the, the, the main contenders, um, a hand, more than a handful of them opted to move away from electronic drivetrains onto mechanical ones, basically just for Roubaix. And as far as I can tell, there was not a single shift cable in the Peloton, men's or women's. Interesting if Sagan had raced, because he was always he's the been one. one of the ones that's held on to it. Cancellara was back in the day too. Yeah, yeah, but that's like that's long ago. Yeah, but those days seem to be over. Um, I, I mean, whatever whatever issues I guess Shimano in particular used to maybe have with Di two in those sort of bumpy conditions, maybe they've taken care of it with this latest generation. I'm not really sure. Um, but one thing that we did see were uh, a lot more clutch equipped rear derailleurs, uh, which was definitely kind of like a onesie twosie sort of thing in the past. But they seem more prevalent this time. And I mean, Roubaix is a perfect. Roubaix is a perfect case for this sort of thing, isn't it? I, mean, I can't yeah, think of I would, anything else. That I would have argued, though, that at least Shimano teams, I would have said that there are less clutch derailers out there. Like SRAM, obviously, all of the access stuff has By a clutch in the derailleur, yeah, just across the board. But Shimano teams, like all when Altegra RX came out, like a number of teams all ran it. And then from people that I've talked to, the riders realized that it said Altegra and therefore got very <laughs> unhappy. 
And then the following year, they all had Durace back on their bike. And this year, I mean, for the most part, everyone had Durace. And Yumbo was on older three generations ago Durace three derailers. And there were a couple outliers of people using like, I think, uh, what team was it? What a direct energy, whatever that's called nowadays, direct energy, those guys. Where there were a few running a one by, they used XTR rear derailleur and a GRX one by rear derailleur. Um, but for the most part, it didn't seem like on the Shimano side, there were many clutch derailleurs. I mean, if that's the issue that it just said Altegra on there, why wouldn't Shimano just like supply some derailleurs with that head? It just said RX or something, just like provide a non series one for, for the team. hot basket. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, I guess why wouldn't you run a clutch rear derailleur at Roubaix? There's zero reason not to. Like, I mean, I've it's ridden perfect. Roubaix couples, it's a perfect chain and derailleur and everything just bounces around so insanely much. So I would think having a clutch makes sense. And even the SRAM sponsor teams that are on one by, which have a clutch, we're still running chain guards on the front to prevent their chain from flying off a narrow wide chainery. So like, yeah. to me, it seems as many ways as you can try and hold a chain on, make sense to use those rather than just being like this is a normal road group set let's use it yeah but sometimes you just want the cobbles to stop so you know any extra mechanicals you can add into the bike is right you know, nice nice rest yep so maybe that's why maybe that's <laughs> oh, why the riders are insisting on a, guess I'm done <laughs> on Jure's. speaking of one by uh it does feel like one by is also another thing that's becoming a little bit more prevalent in Roubaix um, a lot of it of course has to do with SRAM you know, I don't know, they kind of had a war on front derailers for several years now. Um, but it seems like, it, I mean, it's a legitimate drive, like, it's a legitimately good drivetrain option for that sort of situation where it's essentially a flat, a flat course. I would also think it too, it depends what your role is within the team. Like if your role is to be on the front for the first 100K and just smashing it, but then you also want to finish, having two chain rings might be nice. They're like, oh, now I'm going to soft pedal for a little bit and not, be in this 55 single ring like having a, a way to shift to the small ring would be nice when your day's done but you still want to get to the velodrome but like otherwise yeah go for it you're not there's no reason to have a small ring do we ever think that shimano might have a one by setup that teams would want to use they don't seem like they're, they're still on the road big on, they seem pretty they're pretty big on front derailers on, yeah which a front derailler is great like they work when, great when it shifts when it yeah they work really well shimano was big on front derailers and mountain bike until the market told them no so I think if SRAM get their way and can convince enough of the consumer market that one buy is the answer on road, which I think is many years away, then Shimano will follow. They tried really hard there for a bit when they first came out with access stuff. And so many people were like, oh, this is cool. Great. And then you go do a ride in the mountains or something like you travel from the flatlands or you vice versa or something. And you're like, oh, actually I don't have the gearing that right. I need for this. And, and that was with the 11 speed setups before they went to the 10 tooth. Yeah. So the, it, the cassettes just didn't have nearly as much, enough range. Yeah. yeah. It's better now, but it's also nice. You get to the, you get to the top of a roller to go downhill and you just shift once instead of shifting eight times to get into the correct gear. Hmm. Um, how, the classified hub might make an appearance in future rebays. Oh would, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, there there were a couple of technologies that we were wondering if it would show up, and mm. it didn't. One was that scope, um, kind of like on the fly tire pressure adjusting thing that um, team. I think it was DSM. Yeah, um, so they could save up to thirty watts. Thirty watts. Yeah, they didn't use it though. So it, well, <laughs> you would think if they were going to save thirty watts, you would think that it would be kind of like a slam dunk slam dunk case to use it, right? Uh, so no, they, it did not actually make an appearance at Roubaix. Um, we don't necessarily know why. Uh, they did say that they apparently may use it 
uh, on some gravel stages of the tour or gravel stages in general at later races this season. Uh, so it might still make its way into, into a race at some point, but um, I, I, I don't know. Like it, it does seem like if it was going to be that big of an advantage, why wouldn't you use it? I mean, yeah. Unless it's not really that big of an advantage. I also think like, yeah, Roubaix and bike races in general, like you can have all of whatever the latest, greatest, like whatever tires and like you still have to have the legs like the best DSM rider got 18th or something like that's because they weren't running the tire pressure then. Yeah, but then you look at wow he got second <laughs> and he was on tubulars which like I'm not saying that he would have won if he was on tubeless or that he should have been farther back with tubulars but like it doesn't matter you still have to have the legs to push the bike to get uh, to I the finish line. Yeah, I think more importantly, Roubaix, you need to go in with a proven durable product and that hub right. wasn't. It's not. Right, yeah. right. I, mean, I guess it would have been, it would no, have been different maybe if they had been testing it for ages and ages and ages and yeah. had confidence in it. But yeah, or like some other B-riders were on it at Flanders or something, but that didn't happen. And then maybe yeah. the same thing with that classified hub too, uh, which like if well, you yeah, were I running think that's one more by sponsorship setup. related, but yeah. Sure, yeah, I think sure. So, yeah. Uh, well, that and the fact that that, that that classified hub is not yet integrated directly with a SRAM or Shimano lever, which um, I mean, it would seem certainly plausible that that would be a company that SRAM could potentially buy because that would be an interesting part. Like it would play perfectly into their no front derailleur narrative, would. right? Would. Um, well, anyway, either way, uh, one of the things I always find really cool about Roubaix is, despite the fact that we always see all this crazy, just wacky, off the wall tech stuff at Roubaix. More often than not, it is quite a very normal bike that wins, which I think is cool because it just goes to demonstrate that bikes have gotten really, really good and pretty normal bikes are capable of dealing with stuff like that, which is awesome. One thing I've got on my mind is, is there any tech that you think is missing from Roubaix? I mean, James, James really likes the suspension stems. Yeah, but I don't think that's ever going to happen at Roubaix. Yeah, it would um, be nice though. Uh, Ronan, after he's back from vacation, after we have a little bit more time to, to I guess, after he, after he has a little bit more time to recover and kind of like download and, and scribble, uh, he did put together, and, and I think if you follow the Cycling Tips Instagram account, you maybe have caught wind of a bike that he put together for Roubaix. It was sort of like his ultimate uh, no-holds-barred Roubaix bike. And uh, he was running a Lau Fork on the yeah. front of that. Which like, suspension on road bikes is really dumb. But if there's but, ever a place to use it, it would be lovely at Roubaix. So, uh, Zach, I didn't talk to Kaylee about, well, actually, I asked him, I, I didn't get an answer back. But um, did you happen to talk to Kaylee at all about what he thought of that thing? He said it was great. I, I would imagine it would yeah, be. He said it was great. Like, it's so comfortable. I mean, not comfortable is a relative term on cobbles of Less Roubaix, painful. But, like, yeah, it's, it makes it bearable. But, like, you wouldn't then take that bike that Ronan built and take it on a normal road ride because no. then you'd be like, why do I have all of these things? Right, right. And then again, one thing that we do have to remember is while the cobbles gather all the attention at Roubaix, There's still a it's lot of still pavement. mostly pavement. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I mean, I guess another... That's, I mean, I can't remember. There was some tire manufacturer. I don't remember who it was. Some gravel tire manufacturer. It was like, Roubaix people should be on 42s or 45s because it's just as fast. And I'm like... The cobbles are such a short section of the bike race, though. Like, you have to... It's still a road race. Right. So, like, it's this fine balance of comfort, but then also having an actual race bike for the rest of the bike race. 
Like you want you want your bike to be able to make it through the cobbles without falling apart while still being a race bike. Right. But now you can have a race bike with fast rolling 30s or 32s and aero wheels to match and it's light and comfortable and it'll survive and maybe even win Roubaix. And you can just buy them now, which is pretty cool. All right. Well, we are going to move on from Roubaix at this point. Um, and, you know, we talked a lot about gear on this show. It is Nerd Alert after all. Um, but we've also brought up a lot uh, the topic of the rapidly changing retail environment. And the three of us here have certainly plenty of time working in traditional shops. I mean, Dave and I walked away from that world some time ago. Uh, and Zach obviously has gone a different way with his own one-person service, uh, service-oriented service standalone shop here at the Boulder Group Petto. Um, and for bigger retailers, I think for people who have been paying attention, it's a pretty well-known story at this point, and it's basically consolidation. I mean, those bigger retailers are slowly getting bought up by bike brands, and the ones that are still independent are continuing to go essentially deeper with fewer brands. Um, but even if those bigger retailers comprise an outside percentage of the total sales volume, that still leaves an awful lot of small to medium bike shops that find themselves kind of stuck in this weird no-man's land. So many of us do continue to rely on bike shops, though. And so I thought it was high time we discussed the state of retail head on. And to help us with this segment, we have, as a special guest on this week's show, Martin Pearson, the co-owner of Gila Hike and Bike in Silver City, New Mexico. Welcome to the show, Martin. Yeah, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so Martin, the reason why we have you on here is you actually went ahead and reached out to us to, uh, I think you requested that we talk about this topic on the show. Um, because it is something that is, it's certainly a big topic if you're in the retail world right now. And I figured we may as well just have you on because you can just kind of give us your firsthand account of things. Uh, so, so thanks for being on. Um, so, uh, first, can you tell us a little bit about your shop? Kind of like, you know, how big is it? How long have you been around? How many employees you have? That sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. So we're located in, uh, downtown Silver City in Southwest New Mexico, uh, we are a 1,300-foot store that's been in the area since 1987. Uh, we currently have uh, five employees, and um, the basic sort of feel of the shop since it was started was to provide uh, outdoor gear, so hiking gear, biking gear, um, and information about the area to people coming through. Uh, it was a pretty uh, amazing decision to put it where the original owners did because um, – if you're familiar with Silver City, we've got the contents of the bike trail going through town, kind of north to south. And so the through hiking and the uh, Great Divide Tour come through the area. And then east to west, going through Silver City is the southern tier, uh, the popular kind of cross-country touring route uh, that we see a lot of road cyclists on. Um, and so, yeah, the, the general feel of the shop is still the same. We're still trying to achieve what the original owners set out to achieve, but obviously in a, in a very different environment. I mean, it, essentially, though, I mean, while the specifics might be obviously different from store to store, I mean, you're a pretty typical brick and mortar shop in the U.S. I think, as far as <laughs> size and again number of employees and number of employees and all that stuff. I mean, how many brands do you carry? Um, so we're a Trek stocking dealer first and foremost, um, and we also have uh, bike accounts with so QBP, so Salsa Surly, uh, Santa Cruz, uh, Transition, Moots, um, and then on the sort of Outdoor side of things, uh, we're actually a Patagonia store, which is amazing for our size. Uh, really amazing that they put up with us ordering such small amounts. <laughs> um, and then, you know, we carry um, MSR, kind of so Cascade Designs, some of the more thermarest kind of uh, bits and pieces from the outdoor side of things. Uh, basically, though, you know, you're just trying to pay attention to what people are asking for. 
um, and see whether or not it's viable to be able to hold accounts that are that are really small to be able to provide the the gear that people are needing when they come through town. Okay, I mean, it sounds like it's a pretty good setup where you've kind of diversified your businesses to, I guess, help survive. Um, one of the things I'm wondering about is how is running specifically the bike portion of the shop different now than it was, you know, even just a few years ago? Yeah. Um, that's a great question. Um, I mean, you know, for all we hear about game changes, the pandemic actually changed the game, right? Full on. Um, and you sort of imagine like waking up one day and you're in the middle of a game that you, you, you don't even play, right? You don't know the rules. You don't know what's going on. And, and that's really what it felt like, um, in, in about April of 2020, you know, we were told to close, we closed for a couple of weeks. Um, and you're just trying to navigate this very new system where basically the, the, the shutdowns completely changed the way inventory, uh, was, was sent out and received. Um, and we wouldn't be where we are right now were it not for a couple of, um, pretty amazing reps, uh, one from Trek, Ryan Lee, and a fellow named Chris Norbin from QBP, who would take the time to just sit down with me and just explain exactly where we were, right? Where, where, where we are, what's broken, and how does that affect what you do now going forward? Um, and so with every brand, it feels like, or with every bigger brand, you're learning how their back ordering system works, right? So you're trying to figure out, like, if I place this order today, how accurate is that ETA date? When am I likely to see it? Um, in the case of QBP, who've been amazing throughout and have really sort of done a couple of really amazing 180s to be able to accommodate shops that are looking for inventory, um, how do their different system works? And, and basically, just how do we get in line for the products that we know we're going to need? It's been it's been remarkable, I'll say. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I think we're still learning. You know, we're still trying to figure it out, really. As far as Trek in, in particular goes, and we hear a lot from – uh, from various shops, particularly ones that deal with like the really, really big brands, that uh, the big, the bigger brands are kind of consistently asking for more, more commitment essentially from the retailers. Uh, is that something that you've dealt with? A little, although I've got to say that Trek have been remarkably uh, fair with us. You get the feeling that they, being Trek or, or some of these bigger brands too, they're very aware of. Of, of where they're positioned in certain markets, right? So you go into bigger cities and, and they know exactly how many shops there are and how many of them are Trek shops. They've got a really good handle on that. When you look in our tiny corner of the Southwest, there, there isn't much going on. And you've always sort of got the feeling that, that Trek kind of knew that it would be somewhat worth just putting up with us <laughs> as, a, as a really small account because it's worth having a little bit of representation where we are. Um, so we've never really felt, I've never really felt like under the gun with Trek to kind of continue, um, to, to, to grow in a, in a super rapid way. That process has always been dealt with in, in a way that's felt incredibly fair and really, um, based on the numbers that we're, that we're dealing with and that we're giving them. Yeah. I've got no complaints as far as that's concerned. Okay, cool. Well, that's good to hear. Um, and actually this is something that I would really like to get Zach's input on too, but, um, Martin, I think I'll, all of us having worked in bike shops, I think, have experienced the issue where someone walks in, kind of has the attitude that, you know, you're, the shop is kind of making money hand over fist and is trying to get discounts on everything, thinking that the shop can can kind of shoulder that hit to the margin. What I'm wondering is, where does your shop actually make money and where do people think you make money? 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, a, another great question, and, and I'll be interested actually to hear Zach's answer about this, um, knowing a, a small amount about what he's doing there uh, in Boulder. But for us, um, the, the first and foremost, you know, service area, um, we, we, we can make money in the service area, certainly on accessories. Labor is a tricky one because, you know, right now we've got people coming into town from other places, right? If you live in California and you're doing the Southern tier, I mean, we literally had a lady come through the other day who's riding the Southern tier. She got a tune up because of how cheap it was. She didn't need it. She's just like, Oh my God, I can get my bike tuned up for that. And she picked it up. It was clean. It was ready to go. Um, and there's a balancing act there because when we're not seeing the tourist trade come through, we have to make sure our labor rates reflect where we are. Um, and so, yeah, getting that right is really important. I think we, we can make money from accessories on the floor, both from the bike and the outdoor side of things. Um, you know, a lot of the outdoor stuff we sell still has, um, a, a, a healthy margin, quite a bigger margin than, than some of the bikes specific stuff does. And so, yeah, I would say that those are the areas where, where we can make money. And be so profitable. One thing I haven't, one thing I haven't heard you mention though is bikes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> which, which is going to be very counterintuitive to a lot of people because you would think that bike shops make their money selling bikes, but that's not always the case, right? Right. Yeah. We get a few kind of gasps and oohs and ahs when people see the ticket prices of some of the bikes. You know, they, they didn't get cheaper. And by the time you've paid a good mechanic to put it together, um, test ridden it a couple of times, worked with a customer to make sure that it's the right fit, the right bike for them, covered their, uh, adjustments for a month. So we'll make sure that, you know, you bring it back in as many times for a month. We'll do everything you want, you know, suspension, seat height, fore, aft, everything, you know, stem, make sure everything is, is a really, truly uh, comfortable fit. And then we also, uh, we cover the, the first tune up that you get on the bike as well. Um, you really, you're doing well if you, if you made any money on that, you're more than likely breaking even. Um, and so, uh, yeah, the, the, the actual act of selling bikes isn't, um, isn't where we are going to make our profit. So why, why do, why sell bikes? Why, why have them? If, if you're not profitable, what's the, what's, where are you gaining that customer? Where are you gaining the profit from? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. So to answer that, I should probably back up a little bit. So the majority of the bikes we sell sit in the 400 to about $2,000 category. So sort of first bikes or, or slightly upgraded second bikes. So after shipping, building, selling, and maintaining that bike with the customer, there's often not much profit left from that initial bike purchase alone. But selling that bike is still worth it for us because hopefully we've listened to the customer, we've given them sound advice about what size and style of bike to buy. And if we've done all that right, we've gained their trust. So hopefully the customer leaves the store saying, this is my bike shop. And in that sense, entry-level bikes are very much worth stocking and selling. They're really sort of the gateway to the sport. So let's say we sell an $8,000 bike. So obviously that sale generates more profit, but there are a few things to take into account. So we don't sell as many of those through the course of a year. Generally, margins on higher-end bikes are lower than margins on entry-level bikes. And there are mechanics out there that know that sometimes those super nice bikes ship as a frame with all the parts separately. So that's great fun for a skilled mechanic, but in our store, that skilled mechanic might be answering the phone, giving out trail information, checking people out, or receiving inventory. So they're constantly walking away from that build. That means that that bike could potentially be in the work stand for a day or more. So you add into that the time spent selling the bike, getting it dialed, covering the adjustments for a first tune, and a chunk of that profit is also gone. 
Again, if we've listened to the customer, cared for them and built that trust, we're still on track. But it's absolutely worth noting that it's the process that's important and it's not the sale of the bike that's going to keep the lights on. Um, the other thing is that when you think about it from the perspective, I don't want to sound like greedy here, like a money grabbing fool, but the, you know, when, when you give somebody a really honest and thorough experience of, of owning their first bike and looking after their first bike, they're more than likely to come to you for their service and for their accessories, right? We all know that you can't just buy a bike and go mountain biking. There are so many other pieces to it. Um, and so that's where having a really, you know, a nicely stocked store with those accessories to make sure that that customer has got the support they need. That's, you know, the bike is the bike's the gateway drug, if you will. Got it. And I mean, Zach, you don't sell bikes. I do not. So how do things, how do things work for you? I mean, definitely, obviously very different. Um, I mean, I primarily make most of my money all off of labor and then whatever parts are going on the bike, whether it's replacement chains or brake pads or a full group set or wheels or whatever. Um, but I think like just talking about how bikes don't make money and that's like historically bikes, the bike itself has never been like, they've always been very low margin and you make your money off of the accessories, whether it's like fenders and a computer and lights and Kickstands. shoes and like every, all this other stuff to go on it. That's how you make your money. So like, and just talking in more generalization, not necessarily me, but like you go onto any like bike shop or mechanic forum or like anything like this or bicycle retailer comments. And everyone's just like, Oh, we hate direct to consumer. We hate Canyon. We hate specialized. Cause they're like all of these things. And it's like, those bikes aren't how you make the money anyways. So like, why not embrace the like industry trends and the internet being a place where people purchase things and like figure out where your shop makes the most margin because it's not bicycles and whether it's service or it's gear or coffee or whatever, whatever your shop does in your market, like where you make the most margin, like focus on that and build it up and then embrace all the other things. Don't just sit and be super negative about like, Oh, whatever direct to consumer bike is ruining the industry. All these big companies are out to get me. Like, no, everyone's in it to make money, but like, yeah, I don't know. Embrace and focus on what you do well and make money on. I couldn't agree with you more, Zach. You're spot on. And I think that, um, you know, you, you can choose to be that shop that kind of shames a customer when they walk in with a bike that they've bought online. But I'll tell you what, that, that kind of moment where you're sitting in your house at night and you kind of, you know, you hit the button on an expensive purchase and you immediately feel that like, oh God, what did I do? You know, being able to bring that in to a place that's going to listen and, and see what you have and try and recommend how you can kind of enjoy your cycling more really gives you an opportunity to, to, to keep a customer coming back. You know, we, we have some customers on bikes that I probably wouldn't have recommended they bought online, but you listen and you, you care for them and you make sure that they have the support they need. And, um, yeah, they're coming back for their service. They're coming back when they get their flats, you know, that they're, um, you can turn them into a customer, even though they didn't buy the bike from you. Right. So if, you know, it's always been that you have much more margin on parts and accessories and that sort of thing. Um, but how big of an issue, obviously this isn't a new thing, but how big of an issue is it for a small shop like yours that a lot of people can get these parts pretty heavily discounted online? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I will say um, that from where I've sat, one of the reasons that we can even be somewhat competitive with internet um, pricing is because our margins have gone down even on accessories too. And you're paying attention to that. You know, you're watching and you're trying to see, you know, where it makes sense to get certain products from where, you know, maybe having a Shimano direct account is a really good idea because 
that product that you can get from them for a, a decent margin is going to be a much worse margin from other places. That was true before the pandemic. Now it's, it's very different because you'll take that chain or that brake pad that you need from anywhere that you'll get it. Um, so I would say that it is an issue, but I've got to believe, well, I've got to say this too, because I own a shop, right? But like, I've got to believe that there's a benefit for certain people to be able to come in and actually talk about stuff. You know, why would this brake pad be the one I need next? Why is this chain the one that you're telling me I need to buy? Um, and so having a staff that ride the stuff and understand it and can give people that information, I think is really key. Cause I do still think that there's a, a benefit to being able to walk into a place and ask somebody, have a conversation about why something might be what they need. Right. Because I think we've mentioned this before that the, the, the idea that a bike shop can be successful purely being the middleman between you know, someone buying something and where it comes from is, is no longer viable. Like it's just not a good way to do things, which Zach, as you said, you know, when you, when we hear from retailers and stuff talking about, well, I guess, especially on forums, when they talk about how these direct to consumer companies are ruining their business and that sort of thing. I mean, there, there may be some element of that. I, I think there has to be, but by and large, if what they're selling primarily online is complete bikes, and if bike shops never have really made that much money on bikes, then it seems like there should be a way to figure this out so that shops can survive, at least good ones anyway, right? Yeah, and I think too, like so many shops like that do, let's say they do bike sales, but not maybe they're not necessarily making money on it, but like they have so much money tied up into bikes just sitting on the floor that they've ordered eight months ago and then now they're here and they're like, oh man, how are we going to sell all this $100,000 worth of inventory that's sitting on my floor? And then by the time you get that bike, the company's already came out with a new one so it's immediately devalued the one you have on the floor. So it's just this like not great cycle of things. Like obviously there are some shops that do really well and are able to sell bikes and make a lot of money off of selling bikes, but it seems like that's more of a rarity than shops making money elsewhere. But there's also this growing kind of growing, I guess, collective screaming that um, bike companies are, I guess, caring less about their retailers um, and it's, it's hard to say whether that is actually true or if that is just sort of what a lot of people are feeling, but Martin, I'm kind of curious from your perspective. Um, and again, I mean, especially, you know, you, you have just a, a handful of major brands really that you carry in your store, but do you feel like, like bike brands are still taking care of their smaller retailers in particular, or are they kind of looking at the bigger pieces of the pie with their bigger retailers and like factory stores and that sort of thing? I would, um, not to harp on too much about Trek here, but um, I feel like Trek are taking care of us just fine. Um, you know, I've already mentioned that rep who is available whenever I need him. Um, they've also put a really big lean onto the importance of training. So we've got a really pretty impressive um, training series of modules online that we can go and take that really focus on everything from the specifics of certain bikes to the business side of the store to the brand trek themselves to really sort of feel like we we're getting the information that we need to be educated and, and, and put our best foot forward. Um, you do get the feeling from some of the smaller brands that we've not made a commitment with that that's not there as much. Although I'll say those training modules are becoming more common now. I literally just got an invite the other day to sign up for um, the Santa Cruz version of that training module uh, system, which you access from the same place that you access all of them now you know even our point of sale system has has videos that are available so i do think there's an effort there to try and take care of smaller retailers although 
I, I know that, you know, I don't speak for everyone here and, and, and I know that there are going to be other stores out there that might not agree. Um, you know, certainly we're, we're, we're very small, um, and we have gotten really lucky with our reps who, who reach out to us and, and, and make sure that we have the support that we need. Is there anything that you see in the horizon with how things are changing that actually could really just bring the death of Nell for your, like any, anything that could actually be the death of your store and, or just kind of smaller shops in general? Um, because it, it, it does feel like a lot of people are kind of seemingly sounding the alarm that like the end is coming. Yeah. And, and I, I feel for, for all bike shops, you know, there was a, there was a letdown moment in the middle of the pandemic when, um, when it was okay to travel a little bit. And I went back to New York with my, um, fiance to see her, her family and kind of get one of those trips in where you, you know, just see each other again. And, um, while I was there, I had the opportunity to chat with a couple of bike shop owners, um, in the sort of New York area. And it was unbelievably cathartic to just stand with them and, and chat with them and listen to their struggles and know their struggles, you know, they're up all night. They're trying to find these parts. They're trying to do what they need for, for, for their business to keep it running. Um, I've got to believe that we'll be okay because my other four employees, I, I mean, I'm, I'm their job, you know? Um, and so we're going to continue to just basically just, just look at ourselves and say, what do we do well? And what do we do badly? You know, what are we selling that people are enjoying? What's sitting and covered in dust? Um, and really try and just evolve in that way where if we can ask the hard questions about what don't we do well, and we can put some practices in place that, that really get us through and have us improve as a shop. Um, yeah, I've got to believe that we'll be all right. And, and, and there's also, there's a gear piece of this too, where, um, you're still going to have that, that person who's on foot or on bike and they're coming across from the town, ta- uh, from, you know, coast to coast or North to South and they, throw a rock through a spoke or they, you know, they, they broke their chain or they, you know, you, you guys, you know, with the, the touring cyclists, you see some catastrophic problems. Um, even if it's just down to the, the, the nuts and bolts that you need to be able to through hike and, and stay, um, fueled up and fooded up and watered up. There are some key things that we're seeing right now that if we keep following those trends, we keep making sure that we can stop those products. There's still going to be people that we can help. Right. And Zach, I guess in your case, it's kind of like an extreme, extreme version of that where having worked in a, re, a traditional retail shop for a long time, I mean, it was pretty clear to you what was going well, what, go, what wasn't going well, and what your particular strengths were. And now you are in this, I mean, it's a small space, but it's all you really need. And it exclusively caters to your strengths. And it seems to be going quite well. Yeah, for sure. Like, I mean, I'm not a good bike salesman. So here I am. <laughs> Which is good because you don't sell bikes. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, I think, yeah, figure out what works for your area and your clientele and go with it. Like, don't try and buck the trend and do something that, I don't know, doesn't make you money because people in your area don't like whatever that is. Like, yeah. figure out what, what works. Yeah, I've got to say too that your model, Zach, has come up in conversation before um, when we talk about the future of the shop um, and having the courage to be able to, you know, it, it's funny because you rewind 10 years um, the conversation was all about, you know, bigger, bigger, you know, second store and moving into a bigger location. And, and, you know, we, right. we always kind of had that feeling that if we did that, we were opening the door to becoming like kind of one of those Aladdin's cave style bargain basement places, you know, cause you got so yeah. much inventory and you just, 
you, you you're only going to blow it like, out. What do you do with right? that? Yeah. Um, and so in a, in a strange way, staying in the, in the size store that we have has been fantastic because we, we're holding ourselves back from growing, if you will, you know, cause we, we, there's only so much we can carry. Um, and the better we curate that, you know, the, the more successful we'll be, but there is definitely a point where we've, we've discussed like, what if we, we dial the retail back and we just do service and, and it is, it's there, you know, I, I'm, I'm not ready to go down that road yet, but, um, it, yeah, it, it's a possibility for sure. One thing, uh, I want to know about the service side of things. I mean, Martin, you mentioned that your the local market cannot, you know, perhaps won't, uh, won't allow for, uh, certain labor rates, you know, you sort of have to be price sensitive to the, to the local customers. Uh, I'm, I'm keen to hear what, what your hourly labor rate is and, and Zach and what yours is and just how different it is across, across the country. Yeah. 60, 60 an hour. Okay. Yeah. Zach. I mean, I would say, so Boulder is obviously a very unique market. It sure is. It is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I would say like most, I mean, I don't think most bike shops charge necessarily like hourly rate. Like I've worked on your bike for this long. So that's how much it, most things are kind of itemized, but I would say like on average, maybe like probably like 120 or something that ballpark. Yeah. But okay. I mean, yeah, there's different parts of the country and what people will pay and yeah, yeah it's just yeah. how it goes. Yeah. And, and 60, like, I don't, I don't know what the, the national average is, but 60 seems, it seems roughly low, sure. It seems yeah. like it seems roughly correlated to what uh, a lot of bike shops charge in Australia once you do the the currency conversion. Um, but it's certainly I've I've heard of lower in the US as well. Um, yeah. So it can be hard to run a business off of you know if that's your sole focus and that's what your local customer is willing to pay. It absolutely is, and and you know I'm sure that it's going to be it'll be easy for somebody to comment and say, well, just you know put the labor up, um, and and sure you you can. But like I say, when winter comes around and you're you're trying to help your locals out, you know, there's definitely a moment there where you've got to make sure that the labor rates are fair for what people can afford. Um, for us, 60 an hour is a dollar a minute. Um, and it's become a really helpful tool for us, even though it's a low labor rate, to be able to say, you know, because you guys know, you, you've worked in shops, you know that, that, that it's hard to spend two hours on a creek that was, you know, <laughs> a loose quick release. And then say, well, that's 120 bucks, you know? And so there is a, there's, there's got to be a reality there to what you charge for people. And so for us, it's like, well, how long did you spend on it? And basically just trying to find a labor rate that feels fair, but also feels like it's going to benefit the shop too. It's, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult dance. Yeah. I mean, I think like particularly with labor rates, like sometimes like, let's say a creaky bottom bracket or whatever, like sometimes it takes forever to fix it. And other times it's five minutes. And like, if you're charging kind of essentially a flat fixed bottom bracket rate. Like sometimes you win, sometimes you lose and it all kind of averages out. Yeah. That's just kind of how it goes. Like you're not going to be like ch charge two people to different price to do essentially the same thing. Like they're on a group ride and they talk to each other like, Oh yeah, this person charged me $200 to do this and this like, Oh, I had the same thing and they charged me 20 bucks. Yeah. Like it's not right. Like, like how many of us have, you know, signed a, or it's written up a work order for like, you know, true wheel, $15. And instead of it being a five minute job, it ends up being like a half day job because all the nipples are seized. Right. Well, and, and, and I'll say that the $60 an hour rate is kind of a base rate if we're doing something that we don't have a, an existing labor rate for. Um, but the labor rates that we've come up with are based on an amount of time that we think that that job should take. Right. So, um, 
$60 if we don't know what we're doing, but, you know, we have rates, labor rates that I think are pretty fair for the, for the more intense jobs that we're doing. And they get, you know, they get more expensive, the more technical and the more tools are involved, basically just trying to make it so that, you know, when we need to replace a tool, we can. Um, and when we know that we're going to take on a job that's going to take all day, we're going to recoup a labor amount that will cover the running for that day, you know? Um, yeah. Makes sense. Gotcha. Well, I mean, Martin, it does sound to me like you and Zach are taking pretty intelligent approaches to your business. Uh, and I, I, I do hope that any bike shop owners or mechanics or service people, whatever out there that are listening to this, uh, if their shop is not doing well, I hope they can look at their situation and kind of do something similar to what you've done. Look at what they do well, look at what isn't going well. And like you said, make those hard decisions to kind of maybe cut or tune or tweak your business model to ideally make it suit this, the current situation because it is certainly changing quite a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I can't sort of um, sit here and, and, and take any credit at all without just mentioning my staff. Um, I've got an amazing group of people working for me and um, I, I couldn't do it without them. And, and I, I don't know what I would do without them. You know, they're, they're, they're down at the store right now. Um, just, just going for it. And, um, you know, Andrew, Eric, Zach, Doug, these guys are just fantastic. They, they work hard. They, it gets busy and they work harder. And I just, um, I think that I feel really lucky to have the staff that I do. Um, and I just, you know, the, the, it's probably the biggest inspiration for me to just keep trying to learn and keep trying to make sure that we're there because, you know, those guys deserve a good place to work and, uh, and, and, and they, they work so hard, man. Goodness me. It's incredible. Well, cool. Good, good to hear. And, and it's good to know that you have, you've got good staff. Cause I know that is also a, a big difficulty for a lot of shops out there. Um, well let's, um, let's maybe do something a little more fun here. <laughs> um, and, uh, Martin, I know going back and forth with you before we were recording, I know that although you're the co-owner of the shop, uh, you do also have a service background. So that basically means that we have four mechanics here, dude. Uh, and, and if I recall, I think you remember, t I think you told me about actually a, uh, a little game that you and your oh son my play God. that's kind of related to yeah, this, Yeah, I right? get to mention him. This is the coolest. So my son, Addy, and I, uh, when we're driving around, we often listen to the podcast and we've made a game out of asking mechanics. So James will ask the question. We hit pause. I'll give an answer. <laughs> and if it's, the, if it's the same as you guys answer, <laughs> then it's worth a high five or a fist bump. So, uh, yeah, I was say, telling James that if you guys ever want to turn asking mechanic into a board game, you can have that one for free. <laughs> oh, I, 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 I dare say I don't, I don't know if our mainstream appeal is quite big enough to justify making a board game but you know, we can dare to dream card game maybe yeah <laughs> well cool well Martin it'll be fun to have you on here so let's, let's go ahead and jump into it um, and as always all of these questions come from our Velo Club members exclusively uh, if you do have other questions that you would like addressed uh, we do also have the mailbag column that we publish on Psyching Tips every week. So if you have a question, if you are not a Velo Club member and you are still listening to this podcast, feel free to email those questions to me at tech at cyclingtips.com, and then we will look into adding that to a column. All right, so let's go ahead and dive in. This one comes from Velo Club member Stuart Brown. Uh, Stuart's been struggling with keeping tires inflated on his Reynolds ATR X wheels for a while. These are This is a tubeless setup, uh, despite trying a few different types of tires. Uh, he said, once some pressure has leaked from the tire, it's possible to pinch the tire and he can hear air escaping, which suggests to me that he doesn't have a good seal. Um, he said he notices the rim tape doesn't extend into the rim bead hooks. Looking on, rent, on, the, Reynolds, uh, looking on the Reynolds website, uh, it says that the replacement rim tape should be 25 millimeters. Uh, his rims are 23 mil internal. 
However, the tape fitted on his wheels is only 21 and a half mils wide. Would this explain my issues and should I retape them or take it up with Reynolds first? Martin, you are our guest. Why don't you go ahead and take this one Ooh. first? No pressure, no pressure. So that's a, that's a tricky one. I mean, it's not uncommon to need a slightly wider rim tape than the internal rim width would suggest, depending on the profile of the inside of the rim. Um, and I don't think you can ever go wrong following the manufacturer specs. If they're saying 25 mil tape, then you've kind of got to do that and at least rule that out as a possibility. When he's talking about pinching the tire and hearing air, then you know the first thought is the interface between the rim and the tire itself. But if they're calling for tape all the way to the edge of the rim wall, then I think you've got to start there. That, I mean, that, that's certainly where I would look first. Yeah, I would say, so I'd not... I don't remember which Reynolds it is. He said the ATRX. But I don't know, like, so I've seen Reynolds before. I don't know if they're these ones. I don't remember exactly. But the, not the bead hook, but the, like, tubeless tire shelf kind of lip that locks the bead in place on Reynolds that I've seen before is really sharp and kind of pointy. So it makes the tire really tight to fit. So if you take the tire off, the t- the tape kind of comes, like, squidges over with it and then kind of gets more more pointed up at that little lip, which makes it then the tape not. So it measure narrower than what it actually would be. Um, so I would definitely try the wider tape for sure. Yeah, either way, I mean, I agree. This definitely sounds like a tape issue. So uh, Stuart, I would most certainly retape that rim. Uh, one thing that you might want to consider is uh, I mean, my guess, depending on what the tape looks like, you may also have a lot of residual sealant inside the rim cavity. Uh, it might be a good idea to flush that out too, because depending on what kind of sealant you use, some of those sealants can corrode uh, spoke nipples and stuff inside your rim, and then you don't really find it until an unfortunate situation later. Um, but yes, either way, that does sound like a rim tape issue to me. I mean, if Reynolds is going to take care of it, that would be great. However, that also would probably comprise you, or that would probably also include you sending the wheels back to Reynolds, which would be kind of a painful back and forth. Um, see if maybe they'll just send you the correct rim tape. Uh, if so, that'd be great. And otherwise, I mean, rim tape is not that expensive. And I would say like, if only for convenience sake, I personally would probably just retape the things and just call it done. Yeah. I, I would, I would add that for any tubeless product, um, if you're having leaking issues, there's not a lot of things it can ever be. It's, it's, if you look at it as a, as an air holding system, you've got the tire You've got a valve which needs to seal off the valve hole and you've got the rim tape. And if you've ruled out the tire being the issue, then at that point you've got the valve or the rim tape to look at. Uh, And the rim tape and the valve, in theory, they're wear items. So, you know, with time you will have to replace those. Um, So, yeah, I think it's it's just, yeah, fundamentally for any tubeless product. um, Yeah, if you're having ongoing leaking issues and you're sure it's not the tire, then look to the rim tape. Yeah, but either way, this should be a pretty easy one to fix. So that yeah. that's the good news. I would yeah. say almost all tubeless tire leaking issues are the tape. So yeah. I would definitely start there. And and you know, Zach, a while ago, I mentioned something about how much I hate rim tape, and you were just kind of going off about rim tape works fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I would. I think I've definitely ranted about how rim tape is the weak point of all tubeless systems. I disagree. With with your recollection of that. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> well, let's move on. All right. Next question comes from Blaze Mishtal. Uh, Blaze broke uh, their Eagle Axis chain on the trail that, uh, a few a few days ago. Luckily, they were able to pop off the broken outer link with a chain tool, put it back together with a quick link. Question, however, is what do you do now? Uh, can Blaze keep riding the chain as is with two quick links? Should Blaze replace the quick link and an inner link with a new piece of chain? 
If so, where do I find chain pins for Eagle Access chains? Uh, a cursory web search doesn't turn up any because there no. aren't any. Uh, or or do you need or do I need to just throw the chain away? Uh, the chain is not worn. So, uh, Dave, you are our resonant chain expert. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Quick links, just just run them. Um, they're fine. It should be fine with you. Yeah, you can. Uh, Seth Bikax on YouTube just. I think he was very bored or desperate for clicks. <laughs> desperate for clicks and, is probably and clearly had a lot of money to to throw away. Yeah, uh, he he made an entire chain out of out of muscle links, and it, it would work fine. I mean, the 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 muscle links <laughs> designed to be a it's desi- yeah, it's ridiculous. Um, it's the most expensive chain you can imagine. But um, yeah, the the muscle links designed to actually serve the role of a of any link basically of any outer link any plate so it's you know it's designed to be as strong and not to be a, a weak point on the chain so i honestly if you want to keep running that chain it's not worn i, w- I wouldn't worry about running a, a second master link in it it's uh yeah chances are you'll never know it's there okay that i mean i think we're all in agreement on that one uh next question comes from john broughton uh how do i maintain hot, a hot waxed chain on the road uh, John likes to wax his chain and redo it every 300k or so if it gets wet, etc. Uh, so the challenge is, what do I do on an extended trip? Uh, can I take a spare pre-waxed chain? Uh, however, this is not always possible. Next year he's going on a th- uh, next year he's going on a 30-day cycling trip. What's the best way to maintain a chain, or do I just go back to regular dirty old lubes? This was the part of the podcast James did with uh, Adam Kieran and that Dave, Dave did. You mean? Yeah, the Dave did. And Adam's reply was just carry extra chains. <laughs> <laughs> Which is silly because you really should carry your crock pot. Right. Yeah, just ride around with that in your trailer. <laughs> and a generator. And a generator to somewhere, uh, somewhere so you can plug it in. Oh, yes. Yeah. <clears throat> I would just um, use a drip wax to yeah. keep it going. Ditto. Or just regular oil, whatever. Yeah. But, a, yeah. Drip waxes are so good these days. Uh, like Sil- Silka uh, Super Secret or the Ceramic Speed UFO are brilliant products. And uh, honestly, I, I actually disagree with, with Adam's advice to pack an extra chain. I think just use a very good drip lube over the top of your, your pre-wax chain and you'll, you'll be fine. The longevity will be great. The, the difference in the, the wear rate will barely change between the using a great drip wax lube versus using um uh, a hot melt wax yeah because it does really seem like the hot melt is really just only key for that initial treatment and then once all that wax is in there like it's pretty much going to stay in there at that point um but yeah i mean the drip wax really is, is like like dave said it's so good now just just carry a little bottle of that with you and you should be good to go um i will put a little side note here however that uh I can't remember which episode this was, but uh, Zach, you and Kay- little, you and last Kay- group one, <laughs> you you and Kaylee had mentioned something about we were going to counter the get podcast, countering Adam, yes. uh, Adam Kieran from Zero Friction Cycling, and Adam reached out to me and he said he is more than willing to go throw down with you two online on a podcast or something. Uh, I'm not sure that will ever happen though. That would be a long podcast. Probably be very long. And, I mean, I, Kaylee and I can rant sometime, but. Yeah, that, I mean, I, I I dare say that would probably end up being like a agree to disagree sort of episode. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, moving on. This is an interesting one. This one comes from Jared McClintock. Uh, Jared has a BMC T Machine SLR01 with the ICS Carbon one piece bar and stem. 
He said the stem never feels aligned with the front wheel, uh, although he's been told it was aligned during a recent service. He said the forks are uh, it's an asymmetrical design, uh, he said, which is maybe throwing off his visual points of reference. But he said the shape and color of the stem, he said it tends to cast shadows depending on the source of light. He said it's another potential visual, uh, potential visual gremlin sort of thing. He said ultimately he can't tell if the visual disparity is sort of just making him think that it's out of alignment or if it actually really is out of alignment and he just wants to figure out which is which. Well, this is hard to say, of course, because we don't have it here. But one thing I will mention is just because something is made out of molded carbon fiber, you cannot always assume that it is perfectly in alignment all the time. Um, this seems like a really good opportunity for one of the lever alignment checking tools, kind of like what Abby came out with not too long ago, um, which I think is compatible with the BMC steer tube system, I think. No, because don't use a regular compression plug. No, but it's still threaded on top. But I think they have like their little, at least unless they've changed it, it's like a like a foam thing that another thing threads into. Is it not a standard M6 thread? I don't think so. I don't remember. It's been a while. Mm. But regardless, I would say like insert... I've always felt how I see a stem is different from how you see a stem versus how you see a stem. Like everyone sees it slightly different. <laughs> so in the certain these circumstances, what I do, if someone's like the stem, like it doesn't seem straight or whatever, then I will loosen the stem bolts, have them stand over the bike and have them tell, put it where they think it looks straight. And then I tighten the bolts like, and then it's how they see it. And they've said it straight and maybe it's right. Maybe it's not. But like, if that's how they see it on the road and that's straight, then great. That's all that matters. Yep. I think Toon used to make a tool for this. There was a laser pointer. Yeah, it won't work on that bike. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I mean, in, in addition to, I mean, I guess the possibility that it could be off a little bit in terms of just the, the, the way it was molded or something. Another thing to consider too is, um, I mean, Martin, I'm sure you've seen this as well. Modern higher end road bars these days often come with markings on uh, on the bar itself to help you guide where the levers go. However, so you right. can pretty much never trust never rely no. on them to be accurate. No. Um, so another thing to consider too is your stem, uh, Jared, may very well be straight and that bar may very well be uh, molded properly, made properly and everything, but those levers might not be at the right spot uh, up up and down on, on each side. So that could be throwing off as yeah. well. We just got an RABI tool in and I haven't had enough time on it yet to really um, be able to answer your question about compatibility with that bike, but I've seen it used and it looks fantastic. I can't wait to kind of drive that thing a little more. As far as the straightness of the stem, I don't know about you guys. I, I'm, I can't eyeball it on the if I'm not on the bike. And so I'll set it as, as, as straight as I can and then I just have to go and pedal away. And it's almost as if the second you're moving, all of a sudden you're like, oh no, it's kicked this way just a little bit. And I, I mean, I don't want to tell him to ride a stem that's not perfectly straight, but sometimes, you know, discrepancies between one person and another person, you're not talking about something that's going to be dangerous to ride off just a hair is as long as it's, you know, talked and isn't coming loose, you've really not got a lot to worry about. I would say. Yeah. I, I had a first world problem yesterday on, on the topic of that Abbey tool, that Abbey tool in question, you basically remove the top cap of your headset and you thread this little bung in and then your derailleur hanger tool threads into that. Yeah. And you use the derailleur hanger gauge to to flip back and forth between left and right. Uh, yesterday, I hit a first world problem. I um, was using a new lever setter tool, which uh, plugs into the bottom of the bar, um, which is kind of what World Tour teams use. 
where it comes up and it has like the sliding plate that then goes to the base of the lever. I saw that you bought one of those, Dave. You're yeah. crazy. Uh, so I was using that and then I was like, hey, I'm just out of, curi- out of curiosity. I'll put the Abbey tool on as well and see how they line up. And they didn't match. And then I was no like, well, n- this is a first world problem because which one do I trust? It's like having like three pressure gauges like and not knowing which measure, measure it. Take a tape measure and get a third. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, five hours later. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, there you go. So yeah, stick with one tool. Don't don't get too many of the same tool because you'll end up uh, wondering which one's right. But uh, right. So so basically, yeah. don't follow Dave's own advice. Yeah, yeah. But uh, back to the BMC. I um I've actually tested that bike with that with that handlebar, and uh, I can concur that the the angular shapes and the way they've got like the matte red paint on that thing, it's it's a hard one to align. So, um, yeah, I'd take Martin's advice. Go for a ride. If it feels off, change it. Go for a ride, bring a wrench with you. Yeah. <laughs> but, and make sure you bring the right wrenches with you. Yeah, it's a small, it's like a three mil, like I three think. mil or something. Yeah. And so actually, that, that's a, this is a perfect opportunity for one of those little portable torque wrenches too, because... Ooh, yeah. Uh, if I remember correctly, the way that thing clamps is pretty important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap this up with one last question here. This is an easy one. Uh, this one comes from Tom Simchak. What do we have for shop apron recommendations? Ooh. Dave, how Dave, how have you not done like a best <laughs> shop apron tool feature thing? I... Uh... This is going to sound awful, but I just don't care. (laughs) 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 Um, I've got a lot of aprons and I just still reach for like the the raddiest old park tool one just because it's comfortable. So I just, yeah, I've got a lot of nice aprons, but end of the day, it just needs to protect your clothes and it doesn't need to be ridiculously fancy. It just needs to be comfortable. So yeah, sometimes it's the lighter weight, the cheapest lighter weight ones that are the most comfortable. Historically, I don't like aprons and I really only use them to, when I wash bikes because I don't like the idea of having like 15 tools in my apron and then trying to remember if the tool I need is in the pocket or if it's on the bench or in the drawer or whatever. It's just like, it's too much. But in terms of aprons, I would say any of the ones that do the like X pattern across your back are way more comfortable than the ones, the ones that, hang that just neck. Yeah, hang around your yep. neck. I agree. I was that guilty party too, where people were looking for a tool and it was in my apron and I'd be walking around with about eight pounds worth of tools, just like sloshing backwards and forwards in my apron. So I was actually barred from wearing an apron so that people could find the yellow pliers or the chain checking tool. So, uh, I'd say that, um, up until that point, I was really happy with my park apron. It was comfortable and, and Jack's right. The X on the back made it comfortable to wear. I would say it's got a lot more to do with the flare you put on your apron than anything else. So find some cool buttons and some neat individual <laughs> ways to make it yours yeah. and, and be proud of it. A lot of advice. Mm, but yeah, I, I would say well, I, um, it goes back to what Zach was saying, which is how you use the apron. For me, like I only put one on if I'm out standing at a parts washer or, or going to wash right. a bike. So I want something that's really easy and quick to put on. Um, Whereas yeah, if you if you're planning to wear it all day, then that that changes what you pick as well. So, food for thought. All right. Well, I'm gonna go, just go ahead and chime in. I mean, I definitely prefer like the the X the the cross strap setups, just for the reasons that Zach recommended. They are definitely much more comfortable. I, however, had a very different setup when I was working as a shop mechanic because I always had a whole bunch of tools in my apron, but I always had I always had the exact same tools. And I always knew exactly where they were. And I did it mainly because I didn't have to reach back. It meant I didn't have to reach back and forth to the tool wall. 
So I, I used to just keep the same tools in my apron pockets. Like they're always the same ones in the same pockets, same location. So I always knew where everything was and it was always my bench. So it didn't matter if I had those tools in my apron because no one else was supposed to be using them anyway. But yes, personal preferences definitely play into, play into effect here. And Martin, I would argue that you should be allowed to wear an apron. You just are not allowed to have an apron with pockets in it. So you need with to have pockets. an apron with just no pockets. Excellent. All right. Well, I think that sounds like a good place to wrap up this week's episode of Nerd Alert. Martin, thanks so much for being our special guest on this show today. I hope you had just as much fun as we did. Uh, oh, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been brilliant. Oh, it's been super fun. Uh, as always, if you have not already given us a rating or review on iTunes, please do so because it does kind of boost our standing on, on the platform. Uh, make sure you subscribe if you, if you have not already done so to Nerd Alert. Tell your friends about Nerd Alert because we certainly like having more nerds listening to the show. Uh, if you have any questions or comments, as always, you can go ahead and find the associated post on SockingTips.com and then go ahead and leave a comment in there and we'll go ahead and get back to you as soon as I can. Or go ahead and post something in the Socking Tips forum. Or as I mentioned earlier, you can send an email uh, to tech at SockingTips.com. But either way, we're going to go ahead and wrap up right now. I think next week will be a deep dive week. So uh, we'll give the rest of the crew a little bit of a break. And thanks as always for listening. We'll see you next time. Cheers. See ya. See ya.